On April 20, 2007, the squad of Marines from Fox 27 were manning an overpass bridge crossing over a major highway in Iraq known as Checkpoint 286. They were hit by a suicide bomber detonating 3,000 pounds of explosives less than 10 yards from where they stood. This is their story. Okay, so this is Anthony Thompson, uh, Navy Corpsman, HM3. Did uh, two deployments to Iraq, 05 and 07. I'm Eric Morante, three deployments, 04, 05, 07. Uh, retired on 2010. John Mendez, I did the same deployments as him. Um, yeah. I'm Fred Rodriguez, also known as Hot Rod. So everybody calls me, or hot dog, <laughs> or everything else but hot rod sometimes. Uh, I did the 05 and 07 deployment. Jeremy Bruns. Um, I got out in 2015, but uh, with these guys I did the uh, did the 05 and the 07 deployment. Uh, 05 I was with H&S, 07 I was with Fox Company. Uh, I got the unfortunate pleasure of being the radio operator, get hazed by them all the time, but yeah, that was, that was it. In uh, 2007... You were at a checkpoint, now famously known as Checkpoint 286. Tell us what happened leading up to it, as well as what happened to you specifically from your viewpoint. Well, you want to go first? All right. Uh, so I wasn't there. I, I was not on the bridge. Um, I was with uh, a PSD, Personal Security Attachment, for Major Hasseltine. I was his radio operator. And uh, we had just got back from, we were finally getting a rest after being in the marketplace all that time. Uh, the day prior to it happening to them, the uh, marketplace was blown up by the same MO of 3,000 pounds, homemade explosives, and a Mercedes dump truck. They, they'd hit the, uh, the Iraqi police station in the marketplace. Uh, so that was pretty, uh, pretty ruthless, and we had finally got back to Fab Riviera, and we were laying down on the couches in the common area just trying to get some rest, and then the, the entire building got rumbled. But, uh, we all got thrown out of the couches, so we got up, jumped up, got in, in the VIX, and we, as we were, like, running out the door, they said it's checkpoint 286. So we bailed out there, and um, we got there, and it was just, it was dust and chaos. Long story short, we got them all off there, medevac. I think that was, like, one of the fastest medevacs we'd ever done, you know, because they, they were so, they were so wrecked. And um, then uh, while we were clearing out more gear, um, snipers engaged. Uh, they hit uh, Corporal Buxton in the back of the calf. Um, they tried to get as many of us as they possibly could. Uh, those guys got taken out. Um, later on after that, we we, uh, we apprehended the guy who orchestrated all of it. Uh, his name is Abbas Abed Harhoush. Uh, we caught him through one of our informants, and we actually went in uh, a PSD uh, attachment. We went and personally took that guy to, to jail, so I can remember fondly of like picking him up off the ground and taking him. Yeah, so originally I was at the bridge before anything happened. So I was at the bridge with the way that the squad was set up is I think it was four back at the Riviera and then eight at the bridge from our squad. Moranza wasn't around because he had to go back to Camp Fallujah to take care of something personal. And I was I was already ready to stay there with all these guys. 
and next thing you know, I just hear fucking hot rod, and I was like, I was like, who, who's that? You know, in the back of my head, and Ronta just walks in there, all little guy, all mean. Was, he was pissed. He was mad. And I was like, dude, what's wrong? Just get in the truck. That's all he told me. Just get in the truck. I was like, all right. You know, I'm not gonna argue with you. I've known this guy for a long time. You know, since first time I met him, <laughs> I know not to fuck around with him. Um, and I get in the truck, and then we're at the uh, rib, and we're doing working parties, or whatever, and the Iraqi police station gets hit. So that day the Iraqi police station got hit, half of my team, which is me and Marks, and a couple of two Marines were supposed to go out there and replace four guys that were already out there. Well, we weren't allowed to leave because the Iraqi police station just got hit, and they're like, nobody's going to go out. We're trying to see if maybe there's going to be a secondary attack, so we don't know. So we didn't go out that night. The next morning I was doing another working party with Marks. I remember this distinctly because I was like, look, the next thing that's going to go up is that bridge. As soon as I said that, you just see that. You just see the cloud, and it's just like, like, for me, I have survivor's remorse. Because I know that should have been me there, you know? And but what happened to them, and then all the chaos that's going inside the rib, it was just like, why isn't anybody out there? right away, but as at a last corporal like, viewpoint, you don't see everything that's going on, and you're just inside there waiting for things to happen. All I remember is just waiting to pop smoke for the helos to come down and pick them up. I, I don't remember seeing Mendez. I remember seeing Ronte with his legs just, like, weird. I remember seeing Doc with something in his nose. I don't know if he was dead. <laughs> May, he was just sitting up and he's just crying about his back. And Meriquin, I didn't see him or Perot. And that, that was basically it after that. I mean, once the helos came in, I mean, I didn't hear from these guys for a while. And we just got Meriquin and Perot back to the squad. And that was like, we just kept going, kept patrolling, started up a new squad with Cox and Kendra came down to our platoon, our squad, and we just kept going. Um, so uh, these guys were out there on the bridge before. I don't know if I replaced you or another person, uh, but I was back at the FOB, and uh, I think I gathered up their mail and some of their stuff and got a ride to the bridge. And uh, I had been out there maybe, what, three days, you'd say? Probably three days. And... Um, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where I was at, uh, when, when we got hit, but I can tell you that when, when it happened, it happened really quickly. Uh, uh, I, I got knocked out, but then when I woke up, uh, you know, there was still hot stuff like landing everywhere and it was, uh, uh, cloudy. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of it's kind of like, Blur, blurry for me just listening to what these guys say. That, actually, that's the first time I've heard uh, the guys got caught. So, other than the guy that did it who who died, uh, um, but uh, does that bring you any sense of satisfaction knowing we're not so much? Uh, no, it does a lot, a lot. And like I said, this is the first time I've I've heard that part of the story, and I'm glad that you were here to tell it. So, thank you for that. For sure. Um, 
But uh, I, I do remember, you know, seeing Morante's face, and uh, and I did a, I did a lot of yelling while they were. I'm going to say before these guys bring it up, but I did uh, make a little bit of noise when I woke up, and uh, uh, um, and then basically got transported out with with the with the rest of these guys, and that's pretty much. Back out. Yep, that's pretty much what I. And what did, what injuries did you sustain? Um, I, uh, I had broken both my ankles. My, my left one, uh, the bone came out at the bottom of the, bottom of the boot and, the uh, uh, bottom of the foot. Uh, I, my other ankle was busted up too. My, my, uh, I got, I got to tear my, uh, arm and then my shoulder was, uh, was broke. And, um, and I ended up struggling about a year before they amputated it. Uh, it didn't look, it didn't look good. The foot didn't look good. It didn't look normal. Um, but I, like, I tried, we tried everything. I think I had around six surgeries, six or seven surgeries to try to repair it. And it just wasn't, it wasn't working good. <clears throat> so back to that story. Um, I had just came back from Camp Fallujah. I was taking care of my, my dad's death at the time, uh, trying to figure out what exactly happened. And I was, Told that I was going to get a week to kind of mourn and go to Catholic services and be able to pull out money and talk to on an actual phone center. Uh, I think I was given a day and a half. And then I went back to the COC from being, I think it was in Al-Assad if I'm not quite, I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure. I was thinking Camp Fallujah, but it, it was taking forever to get there. So by the time I walked back to the hooch, there was a sign on the door saying, go to the COC. So I went to the COC. I ended up getting on the hook, and it was uh, first sergeant sweet. First sergeant sweet was like, "Hey, you got to come back. We're sending weapons platoon out there tomorrow for a range. Uh, they're gonna do their range, and then afterwards you're convoying back with them." And I was like, "Well, I was supposed to be here for seven days. I've only been here for a day and a half." They're like, "Well, we need you back here. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff going on, so we need you back." I said, "Roger that." I had no other choice, so I jumped back, and the victors went back to the FOB. Come to find out, my platoon commander and platoon sergeant were not in the fob at all they ended up sending them somewhere and i had no idea what was going on most of my guys were already on the bridge and the other three were holding security at at the riv so they were on post i couldn't go up there and really talk to them but i ended up talking to one of the guys and i was like hey what the heck is going on and they're like i don't know man but you got to get back out to the bridge they're, they're basically you need some you need to relieve cox because cox has been out there for like two days now or that day and a half so we we pushed back out to the bridge and that's when i traded off with rod I saw Rod, I was in a bad mood, because I had all these questions that weren't even answered. So uh I remember talking to Rod, and I was like, dude, I was like, I'll talk to you about it whenever we get off this bridge. I was like, you know, it's just boggling me right now. I was like, just go go back, and he, he wanted to stay. And I was like, man, just go back, take a hot shower, you know, call the family, um, and head on back. And I was like, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. So that very next morning, that's when, or that evening is when, they hit the IP station, and then they tried to simultaneously hit one at the front gate, but they stopped them there. So automatically, once that happened, when we were on the bridge, I was like, get ready because it's coming. We're next. Anything on the road that moves, light them up. And everybody got locked and loaded. We were ready. All, all, there was four guys on, four guys off. So we, we doubled up. Well, they didn't hit us that night. They waited until we opened the flow of traffic the next day, which was at 10 o'clock in the morning for them to start pushing through and we had no bat system no no system to know what those vehicles that were traveling underneath us 
what way they were carrying. So we were sitting there, and then all of a sudden I get a call on the mic, and it's like four Humvees requesting permission to come to friendly lines. I'm like, what's going on? It's too early for the child, for them to drop off child, and we just rotated. It was our chaplain. Our chaplain came up there. He brought a Catholic priest with him to the bridge because I I couldn't make it out to the services, so they brought one out to me. So then uh we had mass on the bridge. Four of the guys were, like, Catholic, and the other four were Protestant, so we kind of just rotated out, and we did our own mass and our own services, and then we kind of went back. And as they were leaving was the last thing that I really remember. I was messing with little Mendez because he was looking for a bottle to relieve himself in, and I made a joke about him getting this thing stuck inside the bottle, and that was the last thing I remember from the bridge before the accident. I didn't hear the blast. I didn't feel the the pressure. I just remember waking up from like a dream and then slowly getting the ringing in my ears and then slowly picking up the sound. But before I opened my eyes, like in the back of my mind, I was like, Fuck, we just got hit. And then I had to pull myself out of that debris and then assess the situation. And my left hand was demolished. My right leg was in an L shape. I was spitting blood. Uh, I had grit in between my teeth. And then I could hear Mendez yelling, screaming. I could hear some of the other guys screaming and yelling. And I was trying to figure out where exactly that I was because in the blink of an eye, the whole scenery changed. It went from being like where we are now to completely being somewhere else chaotic and just uh, very hazy. I was shell-shocked pretty good. I remember once I pulled that last piece of debris off of me, I looked up at the bridge and Buxton was running down the debris following the rebel to get to us. And once I recognized his face, I knew he wasn't one of my Marines from the bridge, so I knew QRF had been there. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know. Like, I just knew it wasn't our guys so I knew whoever it was was already there and it was out of my hands so I with my right hand I put pressure on my leg and I leaned back and I was looking up at the sky and I was like God this is on you like you got it now this is as far as I can get and then from there I black out in and out for the next two days we got hit on a Friday I think we got hit at like noon or like post like noon or one o'clock I remember waking up in Germany Sunday fully cognitive again and that's when the pain settled and that's when everything else kind of you know and the the first thing I remember saying is like where are my guys like I want to see my guys like take me to wherever it is that they are and this was you know in Germany but uh there was there was frames there was bits and frames of pieces that that I remember I remember running in a hitch because they had just gotten hit at the IP station and they were getting screened at the same hospital that they sent us and Merrickwin was pushing me in a wheelchair, and I remember running into Hitch, and Hitch's face, when he looked at me, he was, like, completely in shock. Like, he didn't even recognize me because of when I told him, I was like, hey, Hitch. And then he looked at me, he's like, Morante? And I was like, yeah, bro. And he's like, holy crap. I was like, yeah, we got hit pretty good. My face got jacked up, my wrist got jacked, and the, and the leg got jacked. So I had 19 surgeries uh, by the time I got to Bethesda Naval Hospital. That- Right after you blacked out was when we got there, and uh, that was what I told you about down in Texas the last time the bridge ring and uh, your dedication to Marines. Uh, and, uh, 
And I got there, uh, Major Hasselton came running up towards you. And you still stood up and reported your post. See, you said you need to sit down. Face was completely full of blood and, uh, you just kind of look like you're not gonna leave. You said you won't leave. Tell all your Marines off the bridge. And then Doc. Doc was off at the time of uh of the blast, and I remember he was he was trying. To, trying to get some sleep yeah he was in the bunker when we found him yeah so he was laying down and I'm, I'm not certain if he had his kevlar on or if he had it laying back and just leaning on his kevlar but all the trauma that he took all the from the pressure and the blast went directly into his to his back and his and his brain i saw him when they brought him from the bridge he was, into the uh the rib and i i honestly thought he was dead like the way he looked when I came to in Germany in launch school, he was in ICU. And they weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. So they rushed his family. His wife was eight months pregnant at the time. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing Yvonne's mother, uh, Doc's mom, in Germany. And then I didn't want to leave Germany unless all the guys were going together. And they told me that they were going to send us all together. But... They kept Doc there because he wasn't stable to fly. So it wasn't until um, I left. I was in Bethesda. I'm sorry. I was in Germany for a week. We were all there for a week. And then they started flying us out. And they flew me, Little Mendez, to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Big Mendez. I think you went to Balboa. Yeah, I went to Balboa. And you I was went in with Bethesda Bulk for a little while. You went with Bulk and Meg. Yeah. Yeah, so that's when the squad like literally got split up, and then they sent Doc to, I believe it was New Jersey, for the spinal the back, uh, and he's been in a vegetated state since that day. We're talking 12 years now. Could you tell us a little bit about like the, the after the bridge event, what happened? Uh, yeah, uh, so after we got them all loaded up and out of there, and we were gathering up all the gear, all the gear was completely lost. Everything out there was destroyed. Um, <clears throat> we get back to the base, and we all finally get to shower and eat something, and it's probably like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and Major Hastine got an email, and he had our terp uh, interpret it, and he's like, everybody get in the fix. We're still going. Um, and then uh, on the way out there, we got informed of what we were going to do. Uh, our, uh, our informant, Khaldun, uh, he had uh, contacted us and said that um, the guy who planned all this, Ambassador Harhoosh, was there, and he wanted to give himself up. Uh, so we got there early in the morning. We got everybody out of the building. We we had added uh, uh, cordoned off. We went through and started looking through the building. We uh, we found Khaldun and a boss asleep on the roof. Now they'd do that just because it was cooler on the roof and wind and stuff like that. Took a long time to wake up Khaldun, and we got him out of the way. And I can remember uh, myself, the Het Marine, and Major Hasseltine standing around this guy. And Major Hasseltine's like, "Sure fires on three. Those are flashlights." And uh, we all turned them on. 
<laughs> I'll never forget the look in the guy's face. He opened up his eyes, saw us, and just closed his eyes as hard as he could. Like, if he could just blink us away. And I see it was like a boss of Bait Harhoosh, and he's like, yes, good morning. Snatched him up, took him downstairs. I don't think his feet touched touched the ground the whole time. Um, but uh, we took him down. Uh, he was zip-tied, and um, he had asked for uh, his his mom to come and say goodbye to him. And the CO agreed. Uh, his mom beat him worse than anything any of us wanted to do. Uh, she uh, was yelling at him, saying that, you know, you're just like your father and your brothers. You're going to die in jail. You know, all sorts of stuff, just disgracing the guy. But it was it was him who orchestrated the, the sniper attack um, that killed one of our Marines. It was him that orchestrated the um, the Mercedes dump truck in, in the marketplace in the IP station. It was him that orchestrated that uh, the one that hit them. And it was just, yeah. So these are memories that will never leave me. Just I got to have to sit there and catalog and work all this information, and it plays in my head over and over again. What were some of the challenges you experienced transitioning from the Marine Corps, and how have you used your experience to press forward and make yourself and others better? I got out in 2010, and I didn't know which way I was going to go career-wise. Um, I had hit depression in 2008 for about nine months, very hard, because I was alone at the time. I felt alone. Um, all my guys were in different spots, and I felt like I couldn't be a leader without having them there. So then I kind of lost myself in that and uh, hit a freaking domino effect of just downhill rock bottoming out until finally you know I thought about it in the long run and I was like well what am I complaining about what am I having this self pity for when Doc's in the worst situation when there's other guys in the worst situations at the, at the facility that I was at receiving therapy and treatment there was triple amputees burnt patients I mean we all survived 3,000 pounds of explosives by the grace of God. And for us to just sit around and waste life that we were given a second chance to come back, to me was like, that'd be the biggest slap in the face that you could throw back at God. So I started thinking about others. And that's what, you know, got me initially to start moving forward and, and climbing myself back out of that hole that I was in. And it started off small, I mean, baby steps, you know, I, I was taking a couple of steps and I have to sit down in my wheelchair and, and you know, take a break. And, and then it, it started going on and, and, and snowballing effect from, you know, a 5K to a 10K to a full on marathon and then triathlon and Spartan races and the boxing. Um, the support that I got back was my justification. The voice that I became for the rest of these guys became my justification. Teaching others about what it is to be an amputee, what it is to go through war. Like I hit so many different demographics and I've been able to talk to high school kids. I've been able to talk to kids in kindergarten all the way up to 70, 80 years old 
you know, you're talking Vietnam era, you're talking some, you know, some 90 year old World War II vets. And I can talk and speak to each one of those groups and, and feel like I am in their, in their shoes as well because I can relate to a lot of stuff and educating civilians, educating people about, you know, what it is to be resilient, what it is to fight with your guys, what it is to put your life on the line for the country to keep that freedom. That's, that's been my biggest, you know, satisfaction, satisfaction and justification. So, uh, I've been doing that for the last 12 years, you know, and it's tiring, it's hard, it's difficult, but if these guys were in my situation, how would we represent the guys that didn't make it back if we just fell apart? So I feel like we have an obligation as survivors to live our lives to the fullest and help others realize how good they have it because it's so easy to forget on our daily basis, our daily struggles, that there are men and women out there 24 hours a day watching the gates so then that way we don't get the wolf back in our hen house, you know? Um, so that's what I push for. And like I said, I just, now I've, you know, I've got my kid and he's growing up watching these guys raise their kids, being able to take vacations together and come to things like this that, you know, it puts us in a different level of people because we were all kids when this happened. This was my third deployment. I was 22 as a squad leader. These guys were 18, 19 years old. They were, they were, you know, fire team leaders. We had saw gunners. We had these guys. It was a lot, a lot of growing up at very, very quick age. So now for us to teach our kids and then have them experience different, you know, different things that we didn't have growing up is like a blessing because, you know, I'm very proud of a lot of these guys because, you know, they manned up, they did their jobs, they came back and they could have easily sat down and, and given up or just been like, hey, you know what, I'm just going to drop my pack and sit this one out. But these guys are, you know, raising kids. They're, they're great dads. And to me, it makes me feel like I'm a grandfather because I'm watching these guys grow into freaking responsible adults and raising children that I adopted. Every one of these guys' kids are my nephew and nieces. So, you know, they know them by name, you know, and, and we've met each other's kids and stuff like that. So now they know the face as well. And that's, that's what I love about it. Like I, I know Doc is not vocal, but his son is three times as vocal. So what we don't get from him, we get it from his kid. You know, and Doc's still here. Doc still recognizes, he still acknowledges certain things. But his kid is growing up to be just as good or if not even better than Doc, you know? And we let his son know about his dad, too. Correct. Correct. Yeah, learns, learns of his dad through us, in a way. Um, I got out in 2000 and, I believe, 9. Um, just like these guys, we all, we, all, we all pretty much have the same story, especially him because he's an amputee, a little bit furthermore along than I am, um, struggled with depression, um, I, I still have points to where, you know, stuff gets you down, challenges, but we overcome them in the end, um, 
I, I think that all of us survived for a reason. Uh, my reason is my kids. I, that's probably my number one joy in life is being a dad to my three girls and, and letting them know about these guys. I just wanted to bring up someone's name, uh, uh, Volk, who is no longer with, with us, who had passed away, uh, just last year. Last year. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard because, and I'm glad we're at these events because, um, you know, sometimes as we get older, we forget stories. Like I never heard that story uh, about the guy and it's good to come to these events. And then Marante will refresh my memory about what happened and stuff. And it's sad because we always thought that we'd always be around. And now we lost that one voice. If you say, Oh, Hey, remember this that happened that last time. And so we don't have bulk anymore. And I just wanted to, uh, just say his name once and, um, but, um, there, there's no, there's no better story than a person overcoming, uh, their challenges and stuff. And I feel like we've all come a long way and we're going to continue to grow and continue to do better, learn from all mistakes and, and, uh, just grow. And that's it. You want to say something about Thompson? Well, I know Doc was very, very proud and he was very excited about when AJ was supposed to be born and he made it very clear that, you know, he wanted to be there when his son was born. And even though, like I said, Doc lost his vocal skills, he still has a lot of gestures and him being with his son 24 seven, uh, it's probably like one of the best things that I've seen as a person because their family, the way that they are, so close and you know it, it's almost like a like AJ doesn't have a sense to talk to his father because he doesn't respond back to him but you know he's got several others that he can come to whenever that time comes from and he has to ask those questions um, but like I said I, I know Doc's satisfaction for sure is being around his son and his wife, 24-7. All right, so, yeah, since I've been out, I just got out three years ago. I've been working with the VA. I'm a veteran service representative. And basically, me coming to these reunions and these reunions getting put together helps me communicate with these guys and essentially convince them to put in a clinic. That's how I put give back to these guys. Believe it or not, a lot of Marines here say, Doc, services. Well, the guys that are going to have to say the service. And yes, we do, they do. But we all have different wounds that we can't see. And, and a part of me is I like to talk to these guys, and I'm very approachable. I mean, even the junior Marines, some of them still make fun of me because I used to be a, a dick. And I was like, where do you guys get this from? You know, but now I was like, look, we sit down, we talk, and I was like, let's see what we can do and what we can work on, even though you've been out years or you're still in, and even from other units, like Marines that I've served with, they always start calling me up, Sergeant Majors, First Sergeant, they're like, hey, Rod, how can you help me, or hey, what do I need to do? And I and I talk to them, whether I'm working or not, it's like, that's how I get back, and that's how, like, that's my, that's makes me feel good, and sometimes I'm just like, Am I really doing a difference? Am I really making a difference? And every once in a while, I get random calls. Hey, man, thanks. You helped me out. 
thanks, bro. I just, man, you don't know how much this means to me. Uh, and I'll say, hey, man, I'm here to help you guys out. You know, because of you guys, I'm still here. You know, the way he led me. I'm still around. The way Doc protected us every time anything was wrong with us, he was there. No questions asked. He was a big, burly guy that we were all afraid of. He's He's a junior just like me, but because he was bigger than me, I was always scared of him. I was like, man, I don't want to go talk to him. And he, afterwards, he'd be like, hey, man, just don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. But that was him. Mendez, too, he was another one of my seniors. He always looked after us, never. And, I mean, I learned from all that, and that's the way I just get back is from what I learned at the VA, and I try to push as much information as I can out from my experiences. Um, in the Bible... And they use parables to teach. A lot of the great teachers in, in the in the Bible, namely Jesus, they they use stories of things that had happened, uh, David and Goliath and stuff. And they use these stories to teach because there's lessons involved in it. And I, I try and retell and as, remember as much details as possible, so so others can know. You know, stories of courage and strength and honor, like these guys have, like love, like Yvonne has for for Doc. Like just to, to teach and use this stuff to inspire and push others to do great things. That's exactly what I, I gotta do with it. Now I'm helping with the, the veteran app, um, or meeting with other Marines and stuff like that, or any other veteran of any kind to, to try and help them to, to groom them to make sure that as either they, they go on with their career or they transition out that they're, they're ready for everything. And even just try and try and teach and try and make sure that you know this stuff does doesn't disappear. Uh, that these guys get to, to know. It's the whole reason I come out to the, this this reunion, just so guys can remember stories of what what happened to them. Like, that was my job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need That's my I'm doing that. I still am doing that. Like, Grandpa, what don't you take your pills? Cuando se acaba la Judge Judy.